Well, before I start, it's good to see you again. I asked John yesterday, how many times have I come to visit? Five? And he said, four. And so I've been here four years in a row, except there's a PS to that. Uh, I did fly from Boston to Cleveland one time during COVID. Uh, within a half hour, I caught the flight straight back with the same flight crew, the same pilot, and the same plane. Um, and so I think technically I've been here, John, five times. <laughs> I'm starting to get to know you, congregation, better, and so I, I love you in that regard. Uh, one of the reasons I'm here, though, is because I love your pastor. I said to John the other day, kind of give me a schedule. What do you do during the week? And he said, well, I teach Sunday school. I preach. I have theology lessons. I do counseling. People are in their homes on Sundays and other times. And I have a full-time lawyer job. And I said, get busy. What are you doing lollygagging around in central uh, northeast Ohio? I said, you know what? You have to write a book. You have so much free time. So I'm just trying to give him work. But I hope you're appreciative of your pastor and his wife who love you. And one of the main ways you can know that they love you is it's the proclamation of Christ Jesus from the pulpit every single week. And I know the, I haven't been in every church in the world, but I've been to plenty of them. And to get gospel-centered preaching, a high view of God, understanding law, gospel, and other things, it is a rarity. It's scarce. It reminds me of Amos right when the word of the Lord, there was a famine for the word. And so a lot of people teaching the Bible, but not correctly. There are two famous poems and writings. Oh, one last thing before I get into that. Uh, I said to John, I need a Bible tonight. And uh, because I have notes in my Bible, but I I wanted a Bible. And he gave me this New American Standard to preach from. And I'm thankful for the New American Standard. But I want you to know that it's not just a giant print Bible. I know I'm old and giant prints are fine, but John gave me, I think based on how I've aged in the last year, um, the super giant print Bible. (laughs) So I hold in front of you, uh, basically you don't need an overhead projector. (laughs) So I'll just hold this up while you look at it. Next year I'll have the super duper giant Bible if I dare come back. You probably know this poem. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury. Maybe you remember Mark Twain's final words shortly before he died. A myriad of men are born. They labor, sweat, and struggle. They squabble, scold, and fight. They scramble for little mean advantages over each other. Age creeps upon them. Infirmities follow. Those they love are taken from them. And the joy of life is turned into an aching grief. The release death comes at last. The only unpoisoned gift earth ever had for them. And they vanish from a world where they were of no consequence. A world which will lament them for a day and forget them forever. How sad. At least Twain was honest. He just didn't have the answer. Life is very, very difficult. And my question tonight is this. How can you have joy in a fallen world? How do you have joy? How do you have satisfaction in such a world? You just open up your computer or you look at the newspaper. Remember newspapers? I mean, I'm sad my grandchild can't ever play with Silly Putty because he can't put it on a newspaper and stretch out the comic faces because there's no more comics because there's no more newspapers, rarely. How can we receive joy and satisfaction knowing that there's every kind of issue in the world, health issues, economic issues, personal issues, governmental issues? How could we ever have joy or satisfaction? So that's what I'd like to talk about tonight, how you, dear Christian, trusting in the risen Savior can have joy and satisfaction in spite of, even though that there's sin and the world is under Adam's curse. And so take your giant large print Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, it's the preacher. We're going to look at this book tonight, chapters 1 and 2 tonight, and chapter 3 tomorrow for my two sessions. And I want you 
to move past the pain and despair and the sin and the issues in the world. And I want that to drive you uh, to the Lord Jesus. I want you to know that God the Father intends that your life to be satisfying and fulfilling if it's lived with the proper focus on the Lord Jesus. Let you walk by faith and not by sight. And that while the world is very, very difficult to live in, you can still have joy. You can rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. And Ecclesiastes is an honest, pungent, real dose of what life is with an eye toward heaven. If you would like to have meaning in your life, you are going to see from the book of Ecclesiastes that you should enjoy it in the fear of God, seeing your life as a gift from God. Ecclesiastes chapters 1 and 2 for tonight. I know John, your pastor, preaches a verse or two at a time, maybe three or four. And so I think John, would, it would take him probably eight years to preach through these two chapters. So I'm going to do it in one night. Two chapters in one night. Buckle up. See, it's... <laughs> See? Uh-huh. In congregation via veritas, right? So I, I'm going to work through chapters 1 and chapter 2 of this uh, book in Holy Scripture so that you can say, you know what? There is satisfaction found not in this world, but in the God who made the world. And so we walk around maybe with blinders on. You think about horses and you put blinders on them for lots of reasons. Sometimes the world is so sinful, and so are we. Sometimes the world seems so fallen, and it is, that it's hard for us to rise our eyes above what's going on to see things properly. And I think Ecclesiastes is the perfect shot in the arm for tonight. It starts off in chapter 1, verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And this preacher is going to do some preaching. Uh, he's a king over Israel. Most everyone thinks he's Solomon. If he's not, I don't really care. This is inspired scripture anyway. It makes sense that this is Solomon because of what we'll see in his autobiographical section in chapter 2. One thing about it, it's very provocative. Uh, the genre that he writes in and the style, it gets your attention and you think, whoa, uh, this person's blunt. Uh, I live in New England, you know, close to New York City, and people are just blunt. We don't stab people in the back in New England. We stab people in the front. That's kind of the book of Ecclesiastes. He just tells you the truth. The doctor's not going to him and haw. He or she is going to tell you the diagnosis so that you can think rightly. And so let's keep working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, and let me give you my outline for tonight in chapter 1 and 2. But let's set the scene. You go to the beach. You go to the lake. You go to the river. You maybe even go to the backyard and you want to just have a nice tan. Some of you got a good tan today. And you think to yourself, you know what? The sun's out. I'm getting a nice tan. And then a cloud will come. And sometimes based on the weather, the cloud that, that blocks the sun makes it so cold, I have to put my jacket back on. In New England, I'm sitting at the Atlantic Ocean. I think, I've got to put my jacket back on because now it's not sunny. And then all of a sudden, the cloud will pass again, and I will take my, my coat off, and we'll get a suntan. Uh, tonight, basically, we're going to look at five clouds that kind of make things, oh, there are problems in life. Things are gloomy and dark and difficult, but real. And then we're going to end it with the sun coming out for the good news. And so I'm going to give you five problems for assessing the meaning of life that are like these clouds that block everything and give you a, an attitude of, will the sun ever come out? And then we'll finish with the solution, with good news, and that is with the sun, not S-U-N, but the S-O-N. Let me give you the first of five problems, the first cloud, if you will. Number one, life is frustrating, fleeting, and vain. Life is frustrating, fleeting, and vain. How can I have joy in such a life when it's so frustrating, so fleeting, and so vain? And the writer says that in verse 2. Futility of futility, says the preacher. Futility of futilities, all is futility. Or to use the ESV, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And that word, futility or vanity, actually means three different things. Number one, it means perplexing. 
uh, like riddling. Uh, when I was uh, younger and I'd watch Batman where there was not just the Joker as a bad person, but there was somebody else. He had a big question mark on his green shirt, right? He was called the Riddler. And so this Hebrew word, H-E-B-E-L is the Hebrew word, and it could mean enigmatic. It could mean puzzling. It could mean riddling. You look at the world and you're like, well, where do I start? If I'm going to put a puzzle together, where are the corner pieces? Everything seems that way. How many times does he say futility or vanity in, the first, in verse 2? One, two, three, four, five. It just seems like the world is a puzzle. It also can mean that life is futile. And that's how the NAS translate it. And it's, you know, the world's meaningless. We just come and go and everything's just the same. Nothing is really accomplished. Or it could mean something like this fleeting or transient. When I used to take the children to the dollar store, I'd say, all right, every kid gets $3 and you can pick whatever you want. And the girls would pick crafts and my son, he would pick little army guys and, you know, knives and stuff like that. And I think to myself, you know what? <clears throat> this word fleeting or, or, or transient, uh, somehow it, it, it doesn't last. I don't even know why I brought up the dollar store, but there's a reason. What reason I bring up the dollar store? Hmm? My mind is transient, fleeting. And I don't know. I had a good reason to bring up the dollar store, and it's going to come to me in probably well, two days when I'm back in Boston. <laughs> well, oh, let me rescue it. This was not my intention, but let me rescue it. The kids would play with those cheap toys for about two days, and they would vanish. How about that? This word can either mean futile and frustrating. Oh, I know what it is. I just popped in my mind. We would always tend to get a little bottle like this, and you would take the top off, and you'd bring this little straw thing out that had a circle, and you dip it in there and go like this, and you see the bubbles floating, right? Or you, you blow the bubbles. And this word can also mean fleeting, like you'll see the bubble go out, and before you know it, it just pops. Whew, I'm glad I remembered that. Just blame it on COVID lung or something like that. And really, he uses this word with a calculated ambiguity where sometimes it means frustration. Sometimes it means futility. Sometimes it means puzzling. Sometimes it means it just doesn't last. Let me give you one example. Turn your Bibles back one chapter to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 31, second to the last verse. Is Proverbs 31 about Jesus? Is it about a man? Is it about a woman? Well, we'll answer those questions another time. Verse 30, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. If you have a handsome husband, is that vanity? If you have a, a pretty wife, is that vanity? If your children are pretty, is that vanity? Is it puzzling? Is it futile? Or is it just temporary? It's just temporary. And so here, even this word used in Ecclesiastes and in Proverbs, this word comes along, futility of futility. There's frustration in this world. There's a, there's a, a, a riddle to the world, a puzzle to the world, and nothing seems to last. And he emphasizes it by saying futility of futilities to maximize it. Jesus isn't just Lord. He's Lord of lords. He's just not king. He's king of kings. And when you talk like that, you're trying to emphasize things. The emphasis of a world that's upside down. How do we get joy and satisfaction in such a world? Are there answers to be found? Verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Under the sun in this fallen world, not up in heaven but under the sun, what's there to be gained? This is very, very difficult. The fallen world, even the secular world, how can we live a life that's full of happiness and joy that's been affected by and infected by Adam's sin? Very, very difficult. Romans says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. How long have you been working? I've been working since I'm 13 years old. I can think of different jobs that I've had. I think the first job I ever had was catching crawdads in a creek. We called it Crawdad Creek. So there's a lot of crawdads in creeks. And we would sell them to the bait shops. 13 years old. 
trying to catch crawdads. I'm 63 almost, and so for 50 years I've been working, and I ask myself the question, I ask you the question, what does a man gain by all the toil which he toils under the sun in this fallen world? What do you have to show for it? What are you going to take with you when you die? And it seems super pessimistic. Pat, what do you call this sometimes? 1-800? Pardon me? Yeah, this, the, 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 the summary of Ecclesiastes, according to Pastor Pat, is called 1-800-JUMP. <laughs> like, yeah, wow. And, and, and what happens with this writer, Solomon, he starts to show with poetic brilliance how futile things are. Let's take a look at it in verse 4. And you can just feel like, it's almost like you're, you're, you're skiing down the hill or snowboarding down the hill. And you're just kind of going back and forth and it's just getting faster and faster and faster. Where is it going to end? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. I mean, it doesn't last. It's futile. Isn't that frustrating? Doesn't that frustrate you? Nothing lasts. Generations come and generations go. Grandpa who? Great-grandpa who? Great-grandma who? And he just uses poetry to try to express this. The sun rises, the sun goes down, hastens to where it rises. Wind blows the south, goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. The NES blowing toward the south, swirling around, circular courses, the wind returns. More than any other book in the Bible, musicians write about this book and this problem. There's so many. I mean, I could say, you too, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. All the pagans know the lyrics. I can't get no satisfaction. See, even double pagans. John, we've got a lot of praying to do. Even unbelievers realize this problem. They don't know the solution, but they realize the problem. Ticking away the moments that make up a dull day. You fritter and waste the hours in an offhand way. Kicking around on a piece of ground in your hometown, waiting for someone or something to show you the way. So you run and you run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking. Racing around to come up behind you again. The sun is the same in a relative way, but you're older Shorter of breath and one day closer to death. Who wrote that? Well, I guess there is hope for you. Pink Floyd. Dark side of the moon. It's like around and around and around and there's nothing gained. It's futile. It's frustrating. It's puzzling. And, and life under the sun in the fallen world isn't really like a merry-go-round. It's a frustration go-around. And there's plenty of seats for everyone. Verse 7, you see the futility there. The streams run into the sea. All of them do, but the sea's not full. You think it'd fill up to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. Never full. Verse 8, all the things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye's not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. I mean, who remembers anything? Who's satisfied with anything? Remember when the iPhone 4 was such a satisfying feeling? And then what? It's obsolete is right. He just keeps trying to push the point so we'll all say with him, yes, that's true. Eyes under the sun, blinders on, not thinking about the Creator. There's frustration. Verse 9, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, it's already been in the ages before us. Some people say history is not linear, history is not circular, history is going nowhere. Stephen Crane wrote a poem I saw man pursuing the horizon. Round and around they sped. I was disturbed at this. I accosted the man. It's futile, I said. You can never. You lie, he cried and ran on. 
verse 11, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Going back to the cloud analogy at the beach, you're there with your kids or your grandkids, and that wet, warm sand is so inviting, and you start getting some of these um, sand castles made, and bridges and moats and these huge elaborate things and you build for hours and hours and people come and take pictures of your great sand castles and then the tide comes up and washes it all away and there's no trace of anything. And if it wasn't for the Lord Jesus, for us, if we were unbelievers, we live and our kids will miss us, our grandkids will have some stories about us and then after that, Mike Abendroth, who? Pretty sad. Pretty gloomy. This is life. He's trying to show you if you are not thinking properly, this is it. You want to know why psychotropic drugs are at an all-time high for unbelievers especially? Here it is. To not be remembered. That was a curse in the Old Testament, to not be remembered. Well, there's another dark cloud on the horizon. Not just life is frustrating, fleeting, and vain. Wisdom, number two, doesn't help. You'd think if you'd say to yourself, you know what, this is a, there's a problem in the world, and if I just go to school, and if I just have more wisdom and knowledge and insight and acumen, I can kind of, tr- I can make it through. That's what I'll do, is, is I'll study to try to make sure I figure this all out. Is that going to work? Actually, ignorance is bliss. Actually, if you were kind of mentally handicapped, it would be better for you. Is anybody going to make it out alive? What does the preacher say? He switches here to first-person account. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I've applied my heart to seek and search out. That's like digging language. That's like cave, cave language, coal extraction language to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And you know what? It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I'm going to examine things on every side. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to go to school. I'm going to read books about it. I'm going to make a career of trying to have insight. And you know what? Verse 14, here's the, here's, here's the outcome. Solomon writes, I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, now that I'm smarter, everything works out perfectly. No, all is vanity or futility in the New American Standard and striving after wind. You ever strive after wind? Pat and I had the same dad, obviously. His name was Lee Henry Abendroth, and Lee had a lot of sayings. He'd say things like, keep your nose clean. I don't have any idea what that meant. I think it meant, don't get caught. Um, And sometimes when we were bored, sitting around the house, bored, he'd just say, remember what he'd say? Go chase cars. (laughs) How about go call DSS, Child Services Department? Go chase cars. Like parked ones? I don't know, regular ones? How about go chasing the wind? He should have said uh, with Solomon, you know, why don't you go chase the wind to see if you can catch it because you can't catch the wind, striving after wind. It's impossible to do. That's what Solomon is trying to talk to us about here. I mean, they're just things that, I don't care how smart you are, verse 15, what is crooked can't be made straight. It's impossible. I don't care how smart you are. And what is lacking can't be counted. And since that's true, even if I study and I have learning, I'm going to be disappointed. What a disappointing life this is. Life under the sun with blinders, walking by sight and not by faith. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. My heart's had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. I've applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom, verse 18, is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. It's better not to know if you have your blinders on only. One Greek philosopher said, only the educated are free. I think that's a lie. The educated are frustrated. 
the educated are futile. Well, another dark cloud comes up. Aren't you glad you came tonight? The sun's going to come out, not tomorrow, but a little bit later tonight. Kind of matches our weather out there tonight. Cloud one, things are frustrating. Cloud two, wisdom doesn't help. Cloud three, pleasure and possessions aren't the answer either. Pleasure and possessions aren't the answer either. They're not going to help. They don't ultimately fulfill. Obviously, 2 Timothy 3 says unbelievers are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Here we have Solomon. He has all kinds of resources, and he can buy whatever he wants. Whatever the pleasures of men and women are, he could have it all. If Warren Buffett wanted something expensive, could he buy it? Yes. To this day, by the way, I don't know if you know this, my brother Patrick James Abendroth has the keys to Warren Buffett's house. Is that true? He does. He knows the home phone number by heart. He used to call every week and beg for money, but that's another story. <laughs> but the first thing what I said is true, though. Solomon's got it all. Right? Remember, Solomon asked for wisdom from God, and God said, since you ask for wisdom, I'll give you everything else, right, including riches. And now Solomon is going to, it's like a little test in the laboratory, chemistry. And we're going to do a little titration analysis, and we're going to try to test things. Uh, life is difficult. What will help me get through life? Can I have joy and satisfaction in things? I said in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And behold, too, NAS, it was futility. ESV, it was vanity. Now, I want you to notice something, dear congregation. As I'm reading through chapter 2, I want you to see how many times the word I, my, myself, and me are used. Over and over and over. The unholy trinity, me, myself, and I are used all the time. I also want to know, ask you this question. How many times are you going to see the word God, Yahweh, Elohim, Adonai, uh, the Most High in this section. And you're going to see myself, I, 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 and no Elohim, no Elohim, no Elohim. Maybe one Elohim, but we'll get there. Here is going to be Solomon's attempt to try to put himself in Adam's shoes and say, if I only had one more tree. I know God gave me all the trees, but I would be happy if I had the fruit of one more tree. We know how that worked out. Verse 2, I said of laughter, it's mad, of pleasure, what use is it? I mean, it's short term. When the show's over, you have to go back home and face yourself. Laugh and the world laughs with you. That's true in the famous poem, but only for a little while. And you could probably ask, Robin Williams, that question, if you were on earth, sadly. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, verse 3. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. By the way, he's not getting drunk. That's not what he's doing here. He's seeing if a little alcohol will help him comprehend things rightly. It's an experiment. It's a thought experiment. How to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for children of men to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I mean, if wine cheers men and God judges, I'll, I'll have a little wine to see through the lens of wine. If Psalm 104 says wine gladdens a man's heart, I'd like to be gladdened with wine to make sure I see this properly. He's not drowning his sorrows in alcohol. And he, by the way, has vineyard upon vineyard upon vineyard, the best of the best. And he can build things too. I made great works. I built houses, verse 4. I planted vineyards for myself. See, there it is. I, I, myself. Do you see it? I, verse 5, made gardens for myself, planted in all kinds of fruit trees. Verse 6, I made myself from pools for which water the forest of growing trees. For myself, for myself, for myself, for myself. The blinders are on in this thought experiment right now. Solomon's so rich, he can buy people. Maybe buying people will solve my problem. I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. 
the focus was on himself. And as you've been taught at this church very well, you are not meant to consume. You're meant to worship, right? You're created by God to worship. And when you worship yourself or don't worship the Lord, things start breaking. By the way, a little side note here before I get to the good news in a little bit. When you're feeling this way and sensing yourself to think this way, it is a good self-diagnostic thing to do to say, has my life been all about me, myself, and me, my, me, myself, and I? Even as a Christian, I'm doing the right things many times, but now I'm in one of these kind of funky moods, and I'm down, and I'm depressed, I'm just feeling frustrated. It's a good gut check to say, you know, I, maybe I'm not worshiping the Lord like I'm supposed to. Maybe not, I'm, I'm not trying to love God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength and love my neighbor. Maybe instead of worshiping and receiving life as a gift from the triune God, I'm consuming and everything's about myself. I used to think to myself, you know what, I'm glad that God gave me nerves on my fingers so if I touch the oven, I pull back. Because otherwise, if you have no nerves, you touch the hot oven, the hot stove, the hot coals, and it just starts sizzling. And you think, God, why did you give me nerves? Oh, He gave me nerves so that if I touch something hot, I go, ouch. And so like with a good self-diagnostic, when I start feeling this way, and by the way, sadly, often I feel this way, and everything's about me, even as a Christian, and then I think if I'm feeling this way, it's because it's the fruit of the way I've been thinking. And God graciously gives us the fruit of what we've been thinking so that we say, God, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I repent. I'm thinking the wrong way. The blinders are on. I'm walking by sight and not by faith. I'm not thinking about the eternal truths of God. I'm not thinking about who Jesus is and what He's done and how the Father in eternity passed love me and, and send His Son who loved me to, to die for me and to redeem me. And the Spirit of God applying that to my life. I'm not thinking about these things. I'm not thinking about the triune God. I'm not thinking about the Lord Jesus as the song says, who loved me and bought me, sought me with His redeeming love. When you start feeling this way, dear friends, it's time to look up by faith and start thinking the way we're, start, we're supposed to think about things. Verse 8, I gathered for myself silver, gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. If I could just score money, I could get it, just the stock market. Hey, music helps. I got singers, men and women, many concubines, the delight of many sons of man. I got my silver, gold, male, female singers, concubines. How many concubines did Solomon have, by the way? 300 concubines. How many wives? 700 wives, 300 concubines. Now, if you're too young here today to know what a concubine is, let me tell you what a concubine children is. A concubine is like a porcupine. That's all I need to say. <laughs> Ask your mom and dad when you get home. What's a concubine? It's like a porcupine. Problem. 700 wives and 300 concubines, and he wasn't satisfied. As some people say, the best way to cure hedonism is to try it. I mean, he's after money, he's after music, and he's after sex. And as Tommy Nelson said, it sounds like the freshman, sophomore, and junior years of college. And it doesn't satisfy. William Blake said, less than everything cannot satisfy man. Less than everything cannot satisfy man. So who's going to get it all? Life under the sun is very difficult. And the clouds just keep coming. Is there any hope for us? Can we have joy? How do we live this way? Verse 9, so I became great, surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom was retained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, can you imagine? Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, from my pleasure found, excuse me, from my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. I ask again, how many times have you seen the word I, myself, me, or my? I ask again, dear congregation, how many times have you seen the word God? in this section. One passing reference.
Verse 11, I considered all my hands had done and the toil I expended in doing it. And behold, all was what? Fulfilling. All was satisfying. All was wonderful. All was vanity and striving after wind and nothing to be gained under the sun. Well, two more clouds are coming. Here's the fourth. Death is inevitable. Death is inevitable. We're trying to think to ourselves, how can we have joy and satisfaction under the sun? Especially compounded by the futility of life, how wisdom doesn't help, things don't help, people don't help, and we're going to die. Death is inevitable for every one of us unless the Lord returns. Verse 12, so I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can man do who comes after the king? Only what has been already done. Then I saw, verse 13, that there's more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there's more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet, I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For of the wise as of the fools there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. Plato died. Socrates died. Aristotle died. They all die. It's sad. Death, the great equalizer, That has kind of fruit to it, and that leads us to the fifth cloud before we get to the sun. The fruit of all this is despair. It's the despair cloud. Life is frustrating. Wisdom doesn't help. Pleasure isn't the answer. Death is inevitable, and despair is the natural consequence to this kind of life. Verse 17. So I hated life. Suicide's at an all-time high, by the way. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and striving after wind. There is a, a language here in the original of hostility, of hatred, of disgust. Uh, I, this, how can life be worth living? Henry David Thoreau, who had a little home close to my home at Walden Pond. Most men live lives of quiet, what? Desperation. And this makes people mad, angry, mad as Hades. I hated, verse 18, all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool, yet he will be master for all which I've told and toiled and used my wisdom on the sun. This is also frustrating. It's not vanity, it's frustrating. All this self-focus, all this living under the sun, all this not looking up and walking by faith. Can you imagine the Bible teaches in Habakkuk 2, the just shall live by what? Pleasure. Of course. Don't we know that? Galatians chapter 3, the just shall live by hedonism. Don't we know that? What about Hebrews? The just shall live by possessions. Don't we know that? Romans, the just shall live by shopping. Don't we know that? But in all of those, the just shall live by faith, and faith has an object, the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus. Because God is wants our blinders off. Verse 20, So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toils of my labors under the sun. And by the way, when you meet unbelievers who are at this point, this is a perfect time to talk about sin and the Savior. This is when they know they need something. They might not know they need the Savior, but they need something. Because then when you add on personal sin and transgressions and trespasses, it's a perfect time to say, since you are feeling this way, by the way, there's something even worse. Hell isn't what's going on in chapters 1 and 2. Hell is worse, but this should drive people to say, when the blinders are on and the focus is on self, this is the life you get. 
It's a perfect opportunity when we talk to people who think there's nothing to live for to talk about the Lord Jesus. Verse 21, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Verse 22, what is man from all the toil, striving of heart, which he toils beneath the sun? I mean, you talk about totalitarianism. That's here. And then the mind zooms. The mind zips back and forth, verse 23. For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even at night his heart does not rest. This too is frustrating. Okay, think about this for a second. Big picture. Can you not think, dear Christian, about your own personal testimony and see flickers of this in your own personal testimony? I mean, when I grew up, I grew up in a Lutheran church and I thought, well, everything's fine because I don't believe in Buddha, I don't believe in Muhammad, I don't believe in Mary Baker, Eddie Glover, Patterson Fry, depending on how many husbands she had. I, I believe in Jesus, but my life is focused on me. My, my goals were simple when I was younger. Uh, I thought, well, you know, I'm going to do some things like I'd like to skydive, I'd like to scuba dive, I'd like to write a book, I'd like to run a marathon. Oh, well, I've done those, so now what? Living for self, the frustration. I, when I was at University of Nebraska, Pat, I think I got hooked on, besides just doing drugs and alcohol, I, I need NyQuil to sleep, right? Maybe that's not all bad now that I'm older. I need some kind of Benadryl to sleep, but that's another sermon. Hang in there with me. <laughs> But our personal testimonies all may be different. Maybe some homeschool, self-righteous ones. And maybe some just, you know, going to jail. But for both and everything in between, it's self, 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 self. Some of you are old enough to remember Paul Harvey. And I don't know if it's a true story or not, but Paul Harvey said it, so it must be the truth. How does an Eskimo kill a wolf? Have you heard that story? How does an Eskimo kill a wolf? I don't know if it's true, but Paul Harvey said it. I know I said that twice, but that's called disclaimer. Harvey said, first the Eskimo cuts his knife blade with animal blood and allows it to freeze. Then he adds another layer of blood and another until the blade is completely concealed by frozen blood. Next, the hunter fixes his knife in the ground with the blade up. When a wolf follows his sensitive nose to the source of the scent and discovers the bait, he licks it, tasting the fresh frozen blood. He begins to lick faster, more and more vigorously, lapping the blade until the keen edge is bare. Feverishly now, harder and harder, the wolf licks the blade in the Arctic night. So great becomes his craving for blood that the wolf does not know that the razor-sharp sting of the naked blade on his own tongue, nor does he recognize the instant at which his insatiable thirst is being satisfied by his own warm blood. His carnivorous appetite just craves more until the dawn finds him dead in the snow. Consumed by his own lust. Those are the clouds of Ecclesiastes that are trying to drive us to the Lord Jesus. It's like when John the Baptist shows up and he preaches repentance. He preaches the law to make way for the Lord Jesus who is gospel good news incarnate. It's like, yes, my testimony like your testimony was self, 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 self. Sin, sin, sin. Self-righteousness, self-righteousness. And until the Lord intercepted us by His sovereign, amazing grace, how He initiated things, we would have been left. This would have been our lives. Vanity, futility, meaninglessness. I can't get no satisfaction and I never will. But the sun's about to come out. We're not finished with Ecclesiastes. How can you have joy and satisfaction in the world under the sun where people are striving after the wind? God's hardly mentioned at all in 41 verses. One time mentioned. Futility of life is not meant to lead you to despair. It's meant to lead you to the God who gives good gifts generously. 
to enjoy them as a gift from His hand. God intends for you, dear Christian, to have a satisfying, fulfilling life of joy as you walk by faith and not by sight. Verse 24. There's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink. By the way, that's a metaphor for experiencing satisfaction. Eating and drinking is a metaphor in the Hebrew language for having satisfaction and joy and purpose in life, fulfillment. There's nothing better for a person that he should have fulfillment and joy and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the, well, now the Lord shows up from the hand of God. Oh, I see what's going on here. And he goes on in verse 25. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Yet with him, we can have food and enjoyment. We can have fulfillment. This is reminiscent of Psalm 90. Even though our years of our life are 70, or if by strength 80, soon will be gone and fly away. So teach us to number our days, God, that we may have a heart of wisdom. Satisfy us, Lord, in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Life is fleeting. Count our days, not our years, not our birthdays. Life is so fleeting. How can the psalmist then say, so make us glad, satisfy us, because he knows who the Lord is. Dear Christian, your life should be enjoyed as a gracious gift from God. He made you. He gave the Lord Jesus for you. Everything you have is a gift. Do you think you deserve? Do I deserve anything from God? It's all by grace. It's unmerited favor. Maybe you should just say something like this, dear Christian, because I struggle with it. I know you do too. We have conflicts in marriage, conflicts in the church, other things. Just see that little phrase there, from the hand of God, in Ecclesiastes 2.24, from the hand of God. Maybe you could say something like this, God, you've forgiven me, and it's from your good hand. My wife, Kimberly, is from the hand of God. Can you say that? Can you just think that way? Your, your wife is from God's hand as a gift to you. My husband, you can say, ladies, is a gift from Almighty God to me. That I'm alive and that I have some degree of health is a gift from God. That I have taste buds is a gift from God. By the way, this isn't Sunday morning, as you know, but you're probably going to go have something to eat right after this. Normally, pastors don't want you to think about food during the sermon because you won't pay attention. What, what's for Sunday lunch? I want you to think about food right now. I want you to think about salty, sour, sweet. I want you to think about a big old filet, about 14 ounces, two-inch cut, cook, cooked on one side two minutes, cooked on the other side two minutes. Just nice like men like to eat it raw. Rare. I want, I want my steak like sushi. I always say to the people at the restaurant, I'd like mine rare, please. Extra rare. We can always cook it more, but you can never cook it less. And then they come back and it's like brown in the center. No, I want rare. I'm thinking Ecclesiastes. This is from the hand of God, y'all. Sorry, I wasn't in the South. Your taste buds. How about, how, most of us can hear. How about listening to music? Do you like to listen to music? And you enjoy music and you think, it's from the hand of God. You smell coffee in the morning. You think, I love the way food smells. And my wife's cooking something and she's making some kind of banana pudding. It's God's gift. Sight. You ever seen the Grand Canyon? Niagara Falls? A baby being born? It's from the hand of God. See how opposite this is from me, myself, and I. Everything's for me. Everything's for me. No, no, it's a gift from God, and now I can enjoy those things. Those very things, knowing that they're from God. The word enthusiasm means entheos, to put God into something. Now, it's usually used in paganism, but I think it's a good word for Christians. We ought to re enthusiastically receive everything as if God was in them. It's from the hand of God. Everything you have. Psalm 52, the goodness of God endures continually. Haven't you seen that in your life, dear Christian? 
1 John 5, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Haven't you noticed that in your salvation, dear Christian? Thomas Matton said, God is originally good. He's good of Himself, which nothing else is. He's infinitely good. The creature's good is but a drop, but in God there's an infinite ocean of goodness. Do you know, dear Christian, even the word good comes from an old Saxon word, God? Every time you say good, I want you to think, I've received something good. It's from God Himself. That's the key to avoid despair, frustration, futility, and vanity. What God does, He does good. God saw everything that He made, and behold, it was good. I might have told you the story before, but when I officiate weddings, I make sure I do something in premarital counseling. And we talk about purity and counseling and communication and forgiveness and other things in counseling. And the couple's all sweet and they can't wait to get married. And I ask them, how many days will you get married? And the groom-to-be, he doesn't know, but the, but the bride-to-be, she knows 34.34. She knows the decimal points more than most people know the decimal points and significant figures of pi, but that's another story. And I'll say to the man, why'd you pick your spouse? Could you give me four reasons you're picking this lovely bride? And she's looking like, this is going to be good. And he is giving me the look like this. Is it a theological question? Or can I say she's pretty? And so he gives some reasons. And I just officiated a wedding last week. And some of the reasons were... Uh, the man said, uh, I, I like the way she looked. I like looking at her. Um, she's spiritually mature. She loves children. I like the way she honors her parents. She's beautiful eyes. One person said, I kid you not, I pick my wife and I, I love her, my wife-to-be, because she's a five-point Calvinist. <laughs> like, that is really romantic. And then I ask if I can repeat those during the ceremony. And then I say, that's a good reason to choose people based on their lovability for humans. But the God who gives, the God who gives satisfaction, when I read these verses in Romans 5 and you think about how great God's love is for you, dear Christian, He didn't pick you because you were beautiful, handsome, you were pretty to look at. He picked you in spite of you and me being an enemy ungodly, helpless, and a sinner. And if a God loves like that and then gives not just the greatest gift, the Lord Jesus, if he didn't spare the Lord Jesus but gave, him up self, uh, gave himself up for us all, won't he give us the lesser things? For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So when you think, I don't deserve what I'm getting in life, how about we rephrase that? For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. And we get salvation, reconciliation with God, forgiveness, justification, sanctification, glorification, and then He gives us everything else in life. While we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more will be reconciled shall we be saved by his life no wonder the psalmist says oh that men would praise the Lord for his goodness when's the last time you said God you're so good to me there are trials in this life they're striving after the wind there's very difficult situations there's pain and death and sorrow but you've been faithful you've been good you've been so good to me Nahum 1, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows them that trust in Him. And you say, my trust is little. He knows you. My trust is faint. He knows you. My trust is is not what it should be. He knows you. If I had to summarize tonight, here's what I would say. You will receive no joy or satisfaction until your satisfaction and joy is found in the Lord Jesus that the Father sent. Thomas Brooks said, The rattle without the breast will not satisfy the child. The house without the husband will not satisfy the wife. 
And the world without Christ will not satisfy the soul. Over and over and over in, uh, in Ecclesiastes, God talks about enjoying life. God is not a cosmic killjoy. He's not someone that doesn't want to give. How could we as parents want to give our children wonderful things? How could grandparents overdo it in giving wonderful things to their grandchildren? And then God, the Father, is, is chintzy with His gifts. He holds back. He waits for you to earn them and deserve them before He gives them. No, from the hand of God. Did you know every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above? Everything you have, physically, financially, and especially spiritually, is coming down from the Father of lights, James 1.17, for whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. No wonder that's probably from a Christian hymn in James chapter 1. God's beneficial goodness that He gives and gives and gives. Especially salvation of His own will He brought us forth. One of my favorite things to do is to, to give my children, and now I have a grandson. Matter of fact, my grandson's named Amos. It's a pretty good name, don't you think? I hope he lives up to the name Amos. He's famous in my mind already, but that's Amos. <laughs> and, and, and I remember with my four children, I couldn't wait. You know, the doctor would say, well, don't give them any ice cream until 6.9 months or whatever. I'm like, don't touch wet paint. I'm going to give my children ice cream a little bit earlier. And so you give them that little bit of ice cream for the first time. Remember their faces? I mean, exploding with joy is like ice cream. It's like, this is like a dipped cone from Dairy Queen. I mean, it's like, I can't believe it. And their face and their, they're shining. I'm like, you know what? I enjoy giving good gifts to my children. Why do I enjoy giving good gifts to my children? When sometimes they sin against me, sometimes they dishonor me, sometimes they, they sass back, sometimes they lie, sometimes they do things that they're not to. But I as a father, sinful father, human father, finite father, love to give good gifts to my children. And yet somehow in our minds, because of the world, because of sin, we think that fallen human fathers are more giving than the Lord Jesus. I hate it when I think that way, don't you? I don't want to think that way. Because God loves to give good gifts. And we see that in how He gives the Lord Jesus. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Sometimes we're so afraid of prosperity preachers that we can't talk this way. We're so afraid of guys who, who, who have big smiles, we can't talk this way. But this is the God who's in the Bible, the God who we serve. Who can eat and who can have enjoyment without Him? No one. But with Him, I don't care how poor you are or how, what your medical condition is or anything else, you can have great pleasure in the most elementary things. And instead of saying, I have the short end of the stick, I drew the short straw in life, the Lord has sought me and bought me with His redeeming love. And I was guilty in Adam and I was graced in Christ Jesus and I want to respond with gratitude. I was taught, even by an unbelieving father, that you better say thank you. Right? So even when I get pulled over by the police officers and they give me a ticket, I don't know why, but I just say thank you. Trying <laughs> to pull back those words, thank you. The Christian life is, thank you, Father. Thank you, oh my Father, for giving us your Son. That's the Christian life. And he wraps it up by saying in verse 26, For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he's given the business of gathering and collecting, only to, the, to give to the one who pleases God. This also is striving after wind and vanity. Joy and satisfaction in life are only found in the Lord who gives you all good things, not in the good things in and of themselves. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how also will he not give us graciously all things? Aren't you glad you know the Lord? Aren't you glad the Lord knows you? 
And if you're here today and you're not a Christian and your life is what I just preached that it is in chapters 1 and 2, because I know it is, it's not too late to trust in the Lord. It's not too late to say with the tax collector, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus is the God-man who came to rescue sinners just like you and was raised on the third day. And your response is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's very, very convicting, but also comforting and heartwarming to know that you love sinners like us. In the world that was striving after wind, in a world of vanity of vanity, that's the world that the Lord Jesus came into for one reason, because he loved the Father Thank you for sending him to rescue us. May you give us great joy. And even as we have a meal tonight or a snack or meals tomorrow, we recognize it's from your good hand. In Jesus' name, amen.